0: So Nick, it's the holidays. And, it is, and as a gift to our listeners, we've decided to re-release one of our favorite episodes. That's right, and uh, during the holidays, we are reminded of our
1: um, culture and our stories, right, that, and the you know the things that hold our society together. Whether you're a Christian and believe in Christmas or Jew, take. Hanukkah more seriously, or whatever it is, or the variety of other stories that knit together our culture, our traditions, and our society. And so we thought it would be really cool to re-release one of our favorite podcasts that was devoted to the power of these narratives and stories. The episode featuring the remarkable historian Yuval Harari and our friend, the uh, Yale neuroscientist, Molly Crockett. People love the episode, and it's festive, I
0: guess. Festive, right, uh, and that's our, that's our gift, to everybody, and we
2: wish you all happy
0: holidays. Absolutely.
2: We're so good at doing things that are very selfish, while at the same time convincing ourselves that we're doing the most moral possible (laughs) thing. We'll
1: trickle down a few crumbs from the master's table to get some of them through one or two Christmas shopping seasons. And let's tell them that they can do their taxes on a postcard.
0: Our massive tax cuts provide tremendous relief for
1: the middle class and small business. What people have to recognize is that these stories that are told often are not told because they're true, they're told because they're the most effective way ever devised for elites to continue to gain advantage and uh, keep other folks down.
3: From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. Confessions of an American Capitalist, caught on tape
0: i'm david goldstein senior fellow at civic ventures hey nick so last episode we learned that econ 101 is a lie but of course most people don't actually take econ 101 they get the sort of popularized version of it which is trickle-down economics so so what is trickle-down economics and what's the trick
1: yeah so trickle-down economics is sort of the popular form or narrative of something even deeper which is neoliberalism and trickle-down economics is a set of interconnected claims that um, have been advanced by first some economists and then some by some very rich people who uh, harness their self-interest to those claims and finally by political leaders and trickle down economics the most famous instantiation of it is the idea that tax cuts for rich people create growth and the corollary tax increases for rich people will kill growth that's great for you (laughs) exactly and there's another instantiation of trickle down economics which is that raising wages for workers will kill jobs and the corollary if you lower wages for workers or, for instance, eliminate the minimum wage, it will create jobs.
0: Okay, so lowering wages, that's bad for me.
1: (laughs) And finally, that regulation kills jobs and growth, that any way in which we constrain the activity of wealthy people or big corporations, that will be bad for economic growth. And these are the stories that have been advanced by economic elites for the last 30 or 40 years. And... They are what pass for solid economic thinking in our culture and in our politics. And they frame up how most people think about economics and therefore they have had a massive influence on the policies that we have enacted as a country basically based on these
0: ideas. So then as I understand it, if we cut your taxes, Nick, and we lower my wages, and we deregulate all of your companies. It's that all, will be good for you. It's going to be good for me. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Why? It, That's some trick. Yeah, it is, it is an amazing trick. And this trick has been used by economic elites as long as there's been capitalism. And the basic trick is, what's good for me is good for you, and what's good for you is bad for you. And if, Man, and if, I can't win. Yeah, exactly. And I can't lose. And that's the trick in trickle-down economics. And that's the last 40 years in a nutshell. Exactly. And a lot of other epochs in human history. The trick in trickle-down is getting the broad public to believe that anything that benefits elites is good for the society in general and for less fortunate people in particular. Right. And anything that in any way constrains elites will damage the entire society. It's just going to
0: hurt the people we're trying to help. Exactly. You break down trickle-down into three categories. Tax cuts for the rich, wage suppression for everybody else, and deregulation of yeah. powerful interests. Now. But I'd always understood trickle-down as simply the tax cuts part. Yeah, yeah. You know, cut taxes and and it'll
1: trickle down to me. That's the most well-understood form is tax cuts for rich people will trickle down to workers and wages. And you saw that claim used pervasively, extensively, criminally in the tax fight that we had when the Republicans pushed through this giant $1.5 trillion tax cut for rich people and sold it as a thing that would create more jobs and higher wages for poor people. My administration is working every day to lift the burdens on our companies and on our workers so that you can thrive, compete, and grow. And at the very center of that plan is a giant, beautiful, massive, the biggest ever in our country, Tax cut. Consider how interesting it is, how necessary those folks thought it was to make the argument that the point of the tax cuts was not to enrich the rich. Right? That was not an argument no, they no, made. No. They did so not say I'm supposed to get a
0: four thousand dollar raise. Exactly. My council of economic advisors estimates that this change, along with a lower business
1: tax rate would likely give the typical American household around a $4,000 pay raise. And that's money that'll be spent in our economy. It was super important to them to make that the anchor pitch of the tax cuts. And so trickle-down economics always takes this same form. And so on the issue of wages, it is expressed in that very way. You know, the idea that raising the minimum wage, for instance, will kill jobs and harm the very people it's intended to help is just another way of expressing that very same idea that anything that benefits rich people is good for the broader society. Anything that harms rich people is bad for the broader society. And the fight over wages is litigated in this way, this basic claim made again and again and again that any time you raise wages, it will reduce jobs and therefore be harmful to the broader economy. And it's just not true. There's no empirical evidence for it. But it is an incredibly effective intimidation tactic, which is how people should think about it and experience it.
0: So we could really extend this trickle-down ethos to just about any policy. Uh, universal health care. It, it's just going to hurt the people. Exactly. It's supposed to help. It'll uh, kill the healthcare care system. Yeah. Uh, universal free public college. Yeah. Uh, that
1: would be terrible for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 what the opponents of these policies never say is, we don't care about you and we don't want to pay more taxes and we don't care if life is good for you or not. They always say, no, 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 we could do that, but then it would be bad for you. And again, that's the trick in
0: trickle-down. So now, you've described trickle-down as both a narrative and a story, and you're not using these words just in passing. I mean, this is really important to understanding uh, how trickle-down works. Right. And, you know, a big theme of our podcast is that
1: economics is much less a science than people have been led on to believe that in many ways, economics is simply the story we tell ourselves that instantiates our social and moral preferences about status, privileges, and power. And that story in our society, and pretty much in every society, is a story usually made up by elites for those elites. It, in fact, protects and extends the advantages that elites enjoy in society, and trickle-down economics is a perfect example of that. And what people have to recognize is that these stories that are told often are not told because they're true, they're told because they're the most effective way ever devised for elites to continue to gain advantage and to keep other folks down. And nothing could be truer than that about trickle-down economics.
3: first the theory that if we make the rich richer somehow they will let a part of their prosperity trickle through to the rest of us and the second theory and i suppose this second theory goes back to the days of noah i won't say to the days of adam and eve because they had a less complicated situation to face but very very early in the history of mankind there was that second theory that if we make the average of mankind comfortable and make them secure in their existence. Then their prosperity will rise upward through the ranks.
0: When you uh, tell a better story, you end up with better policies. And when you get better policies, you get a better economy. Right,
1: exactly. And so we're really excited today to have an amazing thinker and writer, the Israeli historian Yuval Harari. Who is the author of a couple of amazing books uh, first Sapiens a brief history of humankind and second homo deus a brief history of tomorrow and he has a f- latest book just out 21 lessons from the 21st century dr. Hari, how are you
3: uh, I'm fine thank you
1: you have been very busy Oh, yes, yeah, too busy. I think, <laughs> Dr. Rory, as you may know, we're in the social change business, and uh, particularly around economic policy and economic ideas. And your first book, *Sapiens*, had a huge impact on our thinking, and in particular, the way in which you your historical perspective informs both how human beings. Uh, you know why we are different from other creatures and how we have evolved using um, our you know a culture created by shared stories intersubjective subjective realities and and um, imagined orders has enormous explanatory power and uh, we would love for you to just talk about that a little bit
3: yeah I, I would be happy to um, so well where do we start um Usually when people try to understand the superiority of Homo sapiens, of humans, to all other animals, they tend to think on the individual level as if there is something special about my body or my brain that is so superior to the brain of a chimpanzee or to the brain of a pig or an elephant. But in fact, on the individual level, we are not so special and we are not significantly better or or even at all better than other animals. What really makes us unique is the amazing ability to cooperate flexibly on, in very large numbers. We can cooperate in millions and billions, whereas no other social mammal can, can approach us. Uh, the social insects can, can, com, can cooperate in, in, in thousands, but they lack flexibility. They can't change the way their society functions. Uh, it takes them millions of years of evolution to change the society, whereas we just have a revolution and can change society within a few years. Now what enables us, what gives us this amazing ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers, is our ability to create and spread and believe in fictional stories. Uh, If you examine any large-scale human cooperation, whether a religion, a church, or a a corporation, or or a trade network, you will always discover that it is founded it is based on fictional stories stories about entities that don't exist anywhere except in the shared imagination of human beings uh, entities like gods like nations like corporations like money Um, to to take maybe the last example of money uh, money is not an objective reality uh, you can't eat or drink or do anything useful with these with, with dollar bills. The only reason people value them is because they believe in the stories uh, about the dollar, the stories told by the most important and most successful storytellers of all, which are the bankers and the chairperson of the Federal Reserve and, 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 and so forth. And this is what, and, and I'm not saying it's bad. Uh, this is what enables billions of complete strangers to trade and cooperate effectively, because they all believe in the same story about the dollar. Uh, chimpanzees can't do it, uh, chimpanzees can trade, can barter. but uh, like I give you a coconut and you give me a banana, this can work with chimpanzees. But it demands a lot of trust and, and intimate knowledge of, of, of one another. If two strange chimpanzees meet, they cannot trade, because they have no trust, they have nothing in common. But if now I go halfway around the world and meet a complete stranger, because we both trust in the story of the dollar, uh, we can trade and and we can cooperate.
1: Which is just a it's a it's a remarkable thing. And, you know, one of the really amazing uh, ways in which you explained this so effectively in your first book was uh, was uh, uh, raising. Uh, just reminding us that we've always had these stories uh, and the code of hammurabi being one of the one of the best examples uh from er, from you know earlier human civilizations and how that story was both fictional uh but but accepted as essentially objective reality by those by, by the people of that time and and valued and and, and put place values in all the elements in society in a, in a, in a pretty prescribed way and, and we look back at that story and read it and think, oh, "Well, these things are insane and ridiculous." But it, it is insane and ridiculous to, to 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 value a woman's life at thirty shekels or whatever it was. Uh, but we do exactly the same thing today. I mean, the, the the you know our economy is constructed in precisely the same way. And saying that uh, a, a, um, a person who works in a restaurant in the United States of America is simply worth $2.13 plus tips is no less arbitrary than calling a woman's life worth 30 shekels. And, and that is, you know, kind of re- for, was for us a really remarkable and powerful realization.
3: Yeah, of course, you know, the, the underlying story today is that we didn't decide that this person is worth $2. It's market forces Precisely. that decided it. And market forces are objective and natural, and they are not a fictional story. But it, it's obvious that uh, the story of the free market is also just a story. Yes. In reality, there is never such a thing as a completely free market. If you try to create like, the utopian free market, a market in which there are no regulations, in which everything can be bought and sold, and its market forces that determine the value of everything, then this market will very quickly collapse. Because one of the things you can buy and sell on such a free market is the courts. Why why make an exception for the courts? This is also something, this is also a commodity. So if I'm richer, I can pay the judge. If we have a, a disagreement about a contract, I can, have, I can pay the judge. And, you know, it's a free market. Right. So whoever pays the highest price and what is the price of, of, of ruling in my favor, wonderful. But very soon, trust will collapse and yeah. you will not have any market at all. So unless the market is backed by some other institutions, it cannot function. So the idea that, no, the markets are completely objective, they determine in a natural way, irrespective of human beliefs, what is the value of everything. This is just another fiction.
1: Yes. And, and w- w- again, one of, the, one of the really profound insights, for me anyway, was, I think you called it the, uh, the iron law of history, that uh, these stories are always anchored by one of two claims, either God says or it's a law of nature.
3: <laughs> yes, these are two main main options. Yeah. It's either God said it, or, or this is this is how nature functions. Yes, and in in most cases, uh, when if you find references to nature in a book of of law and not of biology, uh, most of the time it is not nature; it is culture. It's just. People don't don't want to admit that this is a cultural fabrication. So they say no, it's a natural law.
1: Yeah, and 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 that one graph in that one book explained for me the prior ten years of frustration that I've had. L- like so, we have been litigating among other things the minimum wage, and mm-hmm. the thousands of emails, hate hate mail, tweets facebook postings that i've gotten from people who say things like look you you simply don't n- understand the law of supply and demand that if wages mm. go up and uh, you know uh, if uh, uh, jobs will go down and recognizing why it was so important to those folks that it be an, an essentially a natural law but um, that 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 that, that that anchored their entire essentially their entire intersubjective in intersubjective reality and was the thing that uh, enabled uh, essentially enables the or, you know the way in which we have organized status privileges and power in our society
3: yeah, and if, it, you know, it releases you from responsibility from ethical yes. and political responsibility yes. hey we didn't decide it yeah. it's nature this yes. is how things are what do you want
1: yeah these people are poor because it's a law of nature you know we i had nothing to do with it super it's super fascinating so here's a question for you Uh, you know there is not a better example of an imagined order or an intersubjective reality than economic theory it is it, it is a construct created mostly for and by elites to enforce status relationships that the society prefers but there is part of economics which is truly scientific and i often struggle to distinguish between the the, the 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 part of economics which is an imagined order essentially just a way to a story we tell ourselves to enforce status constructs and the the actual science part of economics which i think is a is a much it is a much less important part, but but a part nonetheless. Have you ever considered that distinction?
3: Um, well, obviously there are many many facts which are which are true, which are objectively true, and they are not some kind of intersubjective construct. <clears throat> if you you start with you know you just count how how much wheat a particular field or a particular country produced last year, then there are objective facts there. Correct. Uh, But as you move from the realm of of counting wheat to the realm of explaining the laws of economics and how how everything functions and where value comes from and so forth, then you uh, gradually enter the realm, the intersubjective realm in which the imagination and fiction plays a more and more important uh, part. I would emphasize, however, that there is nothing wrong with fictions and stories and so forth. You can't organize any large-scale human system uh, without it. You can't, I don't know, you can't play basketball unless you have ten people agreeing on laws which are completely imaginary. They don't come from physics or biology. We invented them. You can't similarly have a trade network unless you agree on some rules and laws. And most of these rules and laws, of course, are invented uh, by human beings.
1: Yes. One of the reasons we're such huge fans is that your historical perspective on this gives somebody like me the confidence that these fictions can and should be changed over time to improve the way in which they affect People's lives.
3: Yeah, and they have changed. I mean, yeah. you look, I don't know, a century ago, two centuries ago, so you go to 19th century England and you have all these arguments about, about again, nature that people say it's not good to have eight year old kids working in coal mines. And people would come and say, well, this is the law of supply of demand. This is done by nature. You can't change it. If you now have a regulation that eight year old kids cannot work in coal mines, then the french will will do it and we will be left behind so we must do it and this was a very forceful argument but eventually uh child labor was uh, uh was abolished and everybody now look back and say hey it was actually a great idea yes. to send the kids to school and not to the coal mines it actually encouraged Economic uh, right. uh, economic growth because they started inventing and doing all kinds of things that they couldn't if they just uh, uh, stayed in the coal mine. Yeah.
0: Today, you know, we're told that uh, we can't we can't raise taxes on corporations or the rich because that would uh, destroy growth and kill jobs. But if we tell a different story, a different a different shared mythology, uh, we can change uh, uh, th- that. Um, Uh, that imagined order, right?
3: There is always a tension between the stories people tell and what is actually happening. So you have the priest coming and saying, okay, if we dance this rain dance, there will be rain. And he manages to convince everybody and they dance the rain dance and there is no rain. So eventually you do have to confront reality and not every story about the the economy or the social system will will, will actually work. But it is very important to realize that we are not dealing here with natural laws so we need to have a discussion about what 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 kind of economic system to have whether to raise taxes on the rich for example but this discussion should be based on the understanding that these are not natural laws there is no law of nature which says you cannot tax the rich all these things they are human decisions you can make very wrong decisions We do have a lot of examples of people trying to do an economic revolution and destroying the economy. If you look, I don't know, at Venezuela recently, or what is now happening in Turkey. So it's very dangerous just to think, okay, let's just change the narrative and do what we want. There is still reality out there. But we should also be aware of the opposite view. That you cannot change anything because nature decreed that the way things are is natural, and any attempt to change even a little thing will break the laws of nature, and everything will collapse.
0: Right. Well, I think one of the most profound things that you explained to me in uh, *Sapiens* was when you you said that capitalism was based on faith in an imaginary future that is always bigger and more prosperous than the present. Yes. Um, What happens when we stop believing?
3: If we stop believing, we are not yet there. Uh, If we stop believing, everything will collapse. Because most, actually even today, most of the money that exists today in the world is credit. And credit is in fact belief that the future will be better. If you don't believe the future will be better than now, better in the sense that we produce more, we'll be more wealthy, then the amount of credit in the system is zero. You can't give credit. What you have now is what you have. You'll never have more. Now, over the last few centuries, in belief in the future, and this belief had good reasons behind it. It's not not arbitrary. We did, the the economy did grow in an enormous way over the last few centuries, mainly thanks to scientific progress. But the result uh, is, that now with almost all the money in the world and all the wealth in the, in the world is, uh, is, is, is credit. And if suddenly people stop believing that the future will be better, it's not that we will stay where we are, but everything will collapse. Like most of the money that you see in your bank account will evaporate.
0: That's
1: a terrifying. <laughs> for, for some of us, that's a terrifying idea.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. for
1: those
0: for those of those you have, with
3: the money, yeah. <laughs> this is why the
0: pitchforks are coming, Nick. Yeah, um,
3: so uh, it, it, it's terrifying for everybody. Look, yeah. uh, if you don't have anything in your bank account, you should also be terrified, yeah. because in such a situation, all social order will also collapse. And yeah. usually, when social order collapses, it's the weakest members of society yeah. that suffer the most. Yes. So d- don't like wait for it with gleeful like <laughs> yeah. eyes because it. If this happens, it will be terrible.
1: Yeah, Dr. Harari, thank you so much for y- giving us so much of your time, and thanks for doing all the great thinking. It's Been uh, very uh, fun and inspirational. To follow your work. So.
3: Uh, thank you. And okay, thank, thank you for having me.
1: Hope hope to hope to meet you someday. Take care.
3: Yeah, I hope so too. Take okay, care. take care. Bye. Mm, Bye. Bye.
0: So what I learned from that, Nick, is that stories really are important. And, uh, you know, when Dr. Harari says that if we stop believing in capitalism, it ceases to function, it all falls apart. Yes. Yes, indeed.
1: And stories are everything. And whether it's a belief in money, a belief in contracts, a belief in government, all of these beliefs are what knit societies together and make them go. And when belief collapses, societies collapse. It's a...
0: It's a Something to think about, carefully. (laughs) (laughs) And to make a believable story, you got to structure it in a certain way, right? Not every story is believable. That's right. And because human beings are largely
1: moral creatures, like we live in society with norms and laws, those stories have to be ethical stories. They have to be moral stories. And so today, as I mentioned before, our guest will be Molly Crockett one of the nation's leading neuropsychologists, who will talk to us about human moral reasoning and why it's so important for these stories to take this form.
2: I'm Dr. Molly Crockett, and I am an assistant professor of psychology at Yale University. And I have a lab where we study human morality in the lab and also out in the wild. And we're interested in understanding how we make decisions that affect ourselves and other people, how we judge the behavior of others and what kinds of stories we tell ourselves about why we do the, the things that we do.
1: Great. So cool. So let's start with the neoclassical idea of of human behavior, which is this idea of homo economicus, that people are these perfectly rational, calculating and selfish atomized individuals. So tell us about that.
2: Well, there's been a lot of research over the past few decades trying to butt up against this idea of homo economicus. And the idea of social preferences, which was was pioneered by Many economists, including my postdoc advisor, Ernst Chair, really emphasize the idea that value is more than just material value, that when people make decisions and they're trying to maximize utility or value for themselves, that includes not just for example, how much money they're getting out of the transaction, but also what is the social context of that transaction? Is it fair or is it unfair? Who is the other person? And one of the classic experiments that started to chip away at the homo economicus model was the ultimatum game. The ultimatum game is very simple, and you'll probably recognize a lot of everyday kinds of interactions in this model. So there are two players in the game, the proposer and the responder. The proposer has control over a resource, a pile of money, and they make a proposal to the responder about how to divide up that money. The responder then has the option to accept the proposal, in which case both players are paid accordingly, or the responder can reject the offer, and that has the result of burning all the money, so neither player gets anything. So the homo economicus model would predict that the proposer should offer the lowest amount of money possible to the responder because the responder being rational, will accept any non-zero amount of money because something is better than nothing. Turns out that's not what happens at all when you get actual humans to play the ultimatum game. What happens is that responders will reject offers that are below 30 to 40% of the total pie. So what they think is unfair, they'll reject. And proposers correctly intuit this, and they on average offer between 30 and 40%. And this pattern of behavior has been observed hundreds and hundreds of times in cultures all over the world with a range of amounts of money. So there were some experiments done in developing countries where uh, Western researchers would fund the research and, and they would offer the players sums of money that in local currencies were as much as a month's wages, people would reject that if they thought it was unfair. So this is a very, very robust human behavior. And we found in some of our research, as others have found as well, that when responders reject an unfair offer, this activates reward circuitry in the brain. So despite the fact that they're getting no money out of the transaction, it actually produces a brain signature that looks like it feels good to burn the money rather than be on the losing end of an unfair deal.
1: Yeah, so the actual brain chemistry takes over. Almost. Yeah. Yeah, so right. that's so fascinating. So so Molly, why do you think that we evolved to behave in this way?
2: Well, cooperation is one of the most adaptive and advantageous strategies that humans have developed and humans as a species are far more cooperative than most other species. We cooperate on a scale that's really quite rare in the animal world with the exception of of hypersocial insects like bee colonies and ant colonies. Still human cooperation is really special and we cooperate not just with our own family members, but with people that we've never met, we'll never meet again. Single transactions, economies are built on this. And so cooperation is thought to evolve because it really does confer benefits on individuals and groups. And, and within groups, if you are an individual who gets a reputation for being a really good cooperator. Well, then that's extra good for you. And and you attract social partners, both friends and romantic partners. And then you're going to be more likely to pass your genes into the next generation if you get this reputation as a super good cooperator. So, and there are a lot of good evolutionary reasons why we evolved to have these social preferences, both preferences to be part of fair transaction. So if you're the proposer, you actually, you don't want to be too stingy in your offer. Um, even in a case where you're deciding whether to share resources with another person and they actually don't have the power to burn the money. So this would be called a dictator game. Even in the dictator game, when it's a totally unilateral transaction, people will share 20% of the pie when they totally don't have to, but we think that, that people do because it's distasteful to be unfair when it benefits yourself. It's more distasteful to be on the losing end of an unfair deal, but humans have both what we call advantageous inequality aversion and disadvantageous inequality aversion, which are sort of fancy ways of saying we don't like being on the, the unbalanced end of an unfair deal, whether it's advantageous or disadvantageous. But if we had to choose, we would prefer to be on top than on the bottom.
1: Wow. So let's turn to some of the stories that we tell ourselves, the ways in which we reason morally about the economy. And in this episode, we wanted to untangle this thing we call trickle-down economics, which is, Mm -hmm. broadly speaking, a set of arguments about or explanations about how the economy works, you know, tax cuts for rich people create growth and wage increases for poor people. Or the converse being uh, tax increases on rich people will kill jobs for poor people. And what's super interesting about these arguments is that they've been used for a super long time in a billion circumstances, whether you're litigating slavery, which was, well, you know, slavery is actually good for the slaves, or litigating women's suffrage, which is, well, it would actually harm the women if we gave them the right to vote. We would give them the right to vote, but that would be terrible for their, wherever it is. So you and I have talked a little bit about how that works, but Talk to us about why those arguments always take the same form.
2: Well, so I find this this argument really fascinating. And I do want to say that I'm not a, a macroeconomist, so yeah. I can't provide any perspective on trickle-down economics as a policy. But I do think that the language and narratives around these policies, and as you cogently point out how they seem to be similar in structure to narratives about other kinds of policies in the past that we have now come to realize were morally wrong. It's fascinating because I think it really speaks to just how important morality is to all of us, how important it is to all of us to see ourselves and to convince other people that we're the good guys. Yes. And I think it all goes back to value-based decision-making. And as we were just discussing, although it's true that the brain systems that compute value in decision-making reflect Moral concepts like fairness, I wouldn't call those hardwired because hardwired implies fixed. And in fact, the research suggests that the way we put values on things is very, very flexible. And it's this flexibility in the way we construe our actions and how moral they are or how fair they are. I think that's in some sense, the Achilles heel of humanity because we're so good at doing things that are very selfish while at the same time convincing ourselves that we're doing the most moral possible (laughs) thing. And through that self-deception convincing than other people in a very persuasive way that actually this is, this is for the good of everyone. Yeah. And I mean, there are a lot of different examples I can give. Some of my favorite work on this is studies by Roberto Weber and Emily Hazley, where they they had people playing a, a game where uh, it was sort of a simulation of a, a CEO having decide whether to lay off workers and you can imagine if you're a CEO and you're trying to improve your profit margin and and you realize that you could lay off some workers and that would increase your profit margins but you kind of feel a little bit bad about doing that so you look for evidence that if you lay off these workers they'll actually find a job again really quickly and they'll be fine and in their experiment which is the kind of stylized version of this what they found was that people's estimation of how badly off the laid off employees would be was was heavily biased by the the outcome they wanted to achieve so in the case where you you really want to to lay off the workers you overestimate the probability that they'll be able to find another job in the future yeah I'm paraphrasing the study but that's the general concept that I take away from this. And and psychology is just full of examples of how selective people are at processing information. So you could imagine economists searching a vast body of evidence, you know, data on economies is vast and, and there, there's a lot of complex information to integrate and time and time again, psychological research has shown that humans tend to pick the evidence that's most favorable to the answer that they want to get.
1: Yeah. So one of my life goals is to help people inoculate themselves against this kind of moral gaming of the system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like in, in, in the perfect world, when somebody ha- hears a phrase like, "It will harm the very people it's intended to help," like, alarm bells should start going off in your head. Mm-hmm. You should be like, "Why would they say that?" <laughs> and, <laughs> and while you know, there is, I suppose, a corner case possibility where directly helping somebody will harm them, is that possible? Is it possible to inoculate people against these claims? That if we teach people about how this moral reasoning works, that they will be more attuned to the way in which other people are trying to manipulate their psychology, or is it hopeless? Are we just all like dumb animals that, <laughs> that just we're just we're like little rats in cages, and it, there's are, no hope?
0: Are you asking, Nick? <laughs> how do we tell a better story? Well, maybe I don't know. Do you think there's hope, Molly?
2: Uh, Yeah, I I think it's an interesting idea. And I do think there's hope. I think I think teaching people to recognize the structure of these narratives is an important first step. And I think there must be examples of this. I'm I'm drawing a blank as to a recent example, but the phrase the oldest story in the book, right? Like this is something that we we have in our culture. So I I have to wash my hair. I can't go out with you because I have to wash my hair, yeah. right? Like this is, it's a cliche, it's recognizable. And yeah, so now if you don't want to go out with somebody who <laughs> is asking you out, you can't really use that as an excuse because it's recognizable as this cliche, right? It may very well be possible to educate people about this structure. Um, and and then it's certainly worth trying to do. And more broadly, and I, I think also because we know that people are just fundamentally really, really, un- really sensitive to unfairness. Like, the counter-narrative, like, well, even if even if lowering the taxes will increase your wages by a little bit, look what the top 0.1% are gonna get from this. Are you cool with that?
1: Right, it's sort of the ultimatum game writ large. I get 99, you get one.
2: Yeah, like how, <laughs> you know, you're broadening out the perspective from, don't you want to get one? More than nothing to, how how about you get one and we get ninety nine? Like that is that is a fundamentally different structure. And I mean, it, there are studies with variants of the ultimatum game where people are willing to accept small amounts of money when they don't know the size of the pie. So hiding the size of the overall pie is actually a really effective way to get responders to accept unfair offers in the ultimatum game. But if they know how much the pie is and how much they're missing out on, then they won't accept that offer.
1: Interesting.
0: So it turns out, Nick, that the, the socialists have the rhetoric intuitively right when they go after the 1%. When they're going after rich people like you, that's an effective moral argument.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. An enemy is the necessary part of the narrative.
0: And that's why the pitchforks are coming for you, That's right,
1: exactly. This has been a super fascinating conversation and really useful uh, to us and our listeners, and so we want to thank you. Thank Uh, you. Yeah, it was so fun uh, to talk to you, Molly.
0: So the stories that structure our economy are actually based on neurological structures of our brain yeah it's amazing it, it
1: doesn't just get invented out of thin air the stories that we tell and accept were evolved basically they're the product of evolution and biological evolution to a certain extent and cultural evolution too and so they're not random and they're not surprising they take the same form in the same way and the same circumstances again and again and again and that awareness should lead us to examine these stories in a more careful way when we hear them.
0: Right. The trick and trickle-down, it turns out, is that it exploits our deeply evolved human behavior. That's right, and our need to be moral, to see
1: ourselves in a moral context, to believe that the people who surround us are moral, to give plausible deniability to the people who are trying to take advantage
0: of us, All of these things are essential to how these things operate. Right. That's kind of depressing. Though on the bright side, if we know their trick, then we can use it to build a better story. I hope so. I hope so, too. Yeah.
1: Coming up next on Pitchfork Economics, we are going to do another Ask Me Anything episode. It is always fun to both listen to and answer listener questions. It really tells us a lot about what's getting through and where we're being confusing, and what people care about.
2: Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.